Hello, I want to welcome you to the Point Church Alberta Campus Sunday Preaching Podcast. My name is Josh Heisler and I'm the Alberta Campus Pastor. We strongly believe in the expositional preaching of God's Word, which works to build our faith and grow us up in Christ. Our prayer is that this message will be a help to you on your journey of faith. Now join us as we get to the point. If you guys have your Bibles, I hope that you do. Would you open them up to 2 Timothy chapter 2? 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of those hardback black Bibles from under your chair. If you're using one of those, you will turn to page 995. We're continuing in our series in the book of 2 Timothy that we've entitled, It's Getting Real. And last week, as we began chapter 2, I told you that we're far enough into the book now that we can start picking up on some of the themes that we're going to see floating throughout the book. And as we see these themes and we recognize them, they're actually going to help us to see this book even better. And and what we're going to find is that this letter is even more weighty. It's even more important. It's even more impactful in our lives. So we want to see those themes. And, And the first theme I highlighted for you last week was that the strength we need to follow Christ, the strength we need to serve in ministry, the, to, to serve the Lord is a strength that we get from God. We don't get it from ourselves. We get it from God. The command we saw was to be strengthened. And you'll remember that I pointed out that that is a present passive command. It is a present command in the sense that it's for today, right now, each moment we need to be strengthened. We don't build up a reserve that we rely on, but we rely on the strength we receive in the moment. And it's a passive command in that we don't strengthen ourselves. We get strength from outside of us. And that strength is the grace that is in Jesus Christ. It's God's grace. It comes from Jesus. So the command we saw was to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That was the first theme we talked about last week. And from that, we saw this press to rely on God's grace for strength in everything that we're doing. Over and over, we're getting this command, this theme to rely on God's power, not our own. As we live out this mission to be Christians, to make disciples, who make disciples, to follow Jesus, as we live that mission out, we're going to rely on God's strength to do it. The second theme that we saw as we looked at the text last week was a reminder that following Christ is going to come with a cost. And so Paul called us for the second time in the letter to share in suffering. There will be times where following Jesus is hard, where serving Christ is hard. And what we saw was that we want to embrace the hard, not run from it. Because hard does not mean impossible. So we lean into the cost of making disciples, knowing that that cost is going to include dedication. It's going to take dedication. It's going to take integrity. We have to be the people we claim to be and live out the gospel we can't claim to follow. And we have to have hard work. It's going to take effort to be Christians. That's what we saw last week. But as we continue into chapter two, we're going to see a call to endure. Really, in a lot of ways, what we're seeing is is Paul is kind of riffing on this theme of, of sharing in suffering, and he's calling us to endure. So with that said, let's just dive right in. Second Timothy chapter two, we're going to look at verses eight through 13 together today. Hear the word of the Lord. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. 
Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Elsewhere in scripture, we read that the grass withers, that the flower falls, but that the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, as we dive into this text today, we are desperate for you to do what only you can do. And that's to make yourself real to us. God, we ask that you would speak to us today as we look at your word, that we would find in it application That for the next bit of time that we're spending together, we would put aside the worries of the world. We would put aside the things we need to do later today. And we would just spend this next bit of time looking at your word and seeing how it's confronting us and encouraging us to live for you. God, would you help us today? We need your help. Work in our hearts. Draw us closer to you so that we can live on mission for you. God, as we pray every week, I ask that if there's somebody here today that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, God, we ask that today would be the day where you would convict their heart, where they would repent of their sin and they would come to follow you as their Lord and Savior, to walk in the freedom, the joy that is available at the foot of the cross, that they would embrace that and that forever from today, their life would be changed. We love you, Lord. We know that you can do this. And as you work in us, we will celebrate your faithfulness, your goodness to us. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. There's a maxim in aviation that gets thrown around all the time, all over aviation. And that maxim is that speed is life. Speed is life. If your airspeed in an aircraft, regardless of what size or type you're flying, if your airspeed isn't great enough, your wings will not generate enough lift and you will fall out of the sky. Speed is life. It's even more important if you're flying a combat aircraft. So hypothetically, let's say you're out there flying an F-18 and you have a surface-to-air missile battery decide to engage you and you need to defend yourself. In order to do that, you're going to need to maneuver your aircraft very dynamically, very quickly, with a whole lot of G-load in order to outmaneuver that flying telephone pole that is coming out to knock you out of the sky. And in order to do that, before you begin to maneuver, you have to have speed on the aircraft. The jet's got to be moving. Speed is life. But how do you get speed? You get speed by turning dinosaurs into noise. You get speed by burning fuel. And the problem that comes with that is that regardless of the type of aircraft you're flying, whether it's a 747 or an F-18, there's only so much fuel on board. If you're flying in a, a standard F-18F Super Hornet configured for uh, what we, how we were configured going into Afghanistan or Syria, we would be configured with a single external fuel tank. We would have about 17,300 pounds of gas, of JP-5. That works out to about 2,500 gallons of fuel that we have to burn. A standard uh, mission in Afghanistan or Syria is about seven hours long, which means that you're going to have three pit stops 
on an, uh, a tanker somewhere. So aerial refueling, you, you fly up to them, you plug in, they top you off. You'll do that three times. And even then, as you're doing that, you've got to monitor your airspeed. You've got to monitor your fuel state because it's going to be tight. Max performing a jet like I just talked about, defending against a missile coming at you, you can burn through all of your gas, all 17,300 pounds in about 10 minutes. No kidding. It will be gone like that. So you have to monitor your fuel if you want to endure. And so because there are people that are way smarter than me, the engineers sat down and they figured out how to calculate our fuel and they put into the software of the jet a system that tells us what we can do with our gas. And one of the things it tells us is our max range. Max range is, is how far you can go. So it tells you, based on how much fuel you have right now, based on the altitude you're flying, you can go this far if you fly this airspeed. So it says fly this speed and you'll go as far as this jet can go. That's our max range airspeed. But because our mission often requires us to loiter, to hang out in one spot for a long period of time, the jet also calculates another speed, and that speed is called max endurance. We call it max E. And max endurance allows us to stay airborne as long as possible. We fly that airspeed in order to stay overhead the troops that are on the ground to support them while they're fighting the enemy. That's our max endurance airspeed. It's a slower speed, but it allows us to stay airborne. And, and in missions like Afghanistan and Syria, where the majority of our mission is spent supporting those guys on the ground, we need endurance in order to accomplish our mission. And so we'll fly that slower speed because it gives us that endurance. Well, what we're seeing today in this text is, is very similar. If we're going to live on the mission that Christ has given us, we too are going to need endurance. We're going to need to endure. As Christians today, in order to accomplish our mission, we need to endure. And that's what this text here is all about. Paul is teaching us how to endure. And as we look at this, we're going to see that we endure in three ways. The first way we endure is in hope. Paul is telling us to endure in hope. I want you to look at verse 8 with me here. He says, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. This command here is a command to endure in hope. He says, remember Jesus Christ. Now, why is he telling Timothy to remember Jesus? Do, do we really think that, that Timothy is going to forget who Jesus is? No. No, he's telling him for, for a better reason than that. He's telling him this because we are disciples of Jesus. And because we're disciples of Jesus, because we're Jesus's followers, we're going to follow Jesus. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The path to following Jesus includes carrying a cross daily. I want you to think about that for a minute. Think about how radical this call is right here. We've read that verse so many times. We've heard this idea of bearing your cross to follow Christ so many times that I think we miss out on how, how radical it is. You see, we've cleaned up the cross. For us, it's a decoration. It's something we wear around our necks. 
To us, the cross is beautiful. But to that audience that Jesus was talking to that day, that that call was something very different. To them, the cross was an instrument of shame. The cross was an instrument of torture. The cross was an instrument of execution. And so when Jesus says to take up your cross daily and follow me, that was no light thing to those people that Jesus was speaking to. And in many ways, he he was speaking to us directly too. And and the point of this is, is that following Jesus is going to come with a cost. There are going to be times where it is hard to be a follower of Jesus because suffering is part of discipleship. Last week in in verse 3, we saw Paul pressing us to share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. We share in suffering. We embrace it. And here, Paul is reminding us that even Jesus had to suffer. Even Jesus had to suffer. He endured the cross and everything that led up to that cross. But Jesus didn't just suffer. He didn't just die. No, through that suffering, through that death, Jesus also had victory. He was victorious. You see, the rest of the sentence that Paul writes right here in 2 Timothy, it matters. Paul didn't just write, remember Jesus Christ as preached in my gospel. That's not what he says right there, is it? He says, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. That matters. Jesus didn't just suffer and die. He also rose from the dead. He was victorious. He won. And that victory is the grounds for which we remember Jesus. That victory gives us what we need to endure. So we remember Jesus. We remember that Jesus was risen from the dead. And that that proves that he is God. We remember that Jesus' resurrection also proves that he is the, the fulfillment of God's promise. He is the savior that would come in the line of David. That's what he's saying right here. And that makes Jesus our hope. In Jesus' resurrection, we find life. In Jesus' resurrection, we find the fulfillment of God's promises. In Jesus' resurrection, we find hope. That's the gospel that Paul preached. Think about that. The gospel of hope. And that's what we're enduring in. As we move into verse 9, Paul is pointing us to his example. He's showing us how he endured in hope and the reason why he's able to do that. Look at verse 9. He says, For which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Paul is in prison. He's facing certain death. And he's there because he proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's facing death because he proclaimed the gospel that is his hope. And yet in that moment where he's been disgraced as a criminal, bound with chains, fully aware of the cost of following Jesus, fully aware of the price that is about to be paid, he has hope. 
And the reason that he has hope there is in the second half of verse nine. Because while Paul is bound with chains as a criminal, the word of God is not. That's what he's saying right here. Rome can't lock the gospel up. Rome can't stop the gospel. There's a cost for following Jesus, but even as Paul pays that cost, the gospel moves forward. And that gives Paul hope because the gospel is still successful. There's still victory. You see, Paul understood something that we really need to understand. And that's that suffering does not equal failure. Suffering does not equal failure. So often, we, we think it does. We live in a society that doesn't like pain. Am I right? Like you can go to the grocery store and you can buy a pill for just about every kind of pain like that. We live in a society that doesn't like pain. And, and one of the things that kind of teaches us is, is that because we're in a society where you can get rid of pain so easily, that, that obviously if you're experiencing difficulty, if you're experiencing pain, then, then what that means is that you are failing. That's what our society teaches us. But it's, it's not true. In August of 2009, I, I think I've told you guys this before, I was on deployment on the USS Nimitz and we pulled into uh, Yokosuka, Japan and a bunch of my fellow officers and I got on a train and went up to Tokyo for the week. And one night while we were at a baseball game there in Tokyo, we decided it would be just a great idea to go climb Mount Fuji the next day. And, and so that next morning at 3.30 in the morning, we got up at our hotel and we went to the train station. We got on the two-hour train ride down to the base of the mountain. We get to the base of the mountain about 6.30 or so in the morning and we start the climb up to the top of Mount Fuji. About an hour or so into the climb, 45 minutes maybe, um, it, it was easy at first, but as we're getting in there, I'm 45 minutes in, I'm out of breath. I'm exhausted. My legs are screaming at me, but I kept going. Maybe an hour or so after that into the climb, I got a nosebleed right there on the side of the mountain. I don't have anything to deal with it. So now my legs are screaming at me. I'm out of breath. I can barely breathe and I have a nosebleed. And in that moment, I was hurting. In that moment, I was ready to quit. I was ready to turn around and just head back to the train station. But I had this like within me, this intense desire, this hope to be able to go back to the ship at the end of this port call and brag about the fact that I had climbed Mount Fuji. I had this intense desire to be able to go back and show everybody a picture and say, look, I've been to the top of Mount Fuji. And so in that moment, you know, two hours or so into the climb, my legs are screaming, I'm out of breath, my nose is bleeding. In that moment, I pressed through the pain and I endured because I had hope of getting to the top. And that's what we're seeing kind of here right now. Suffering, pain, it, it doesn't mean we failed. We need to press forward and our hope enables us to do that. Our culture teaches us that suffering means we failed. Our culture teaches us that if it hurts, we must be doing something wrong. But what Paul is telling us here is to embrace suffering. Embrace your hope because it's going to lead you through. Because suffering does not mean failure. We need to understand that. 
Paul understood that even though he was locked up in jail, the gospel message was going forward. So we remember our hope in Christ who has defeated sin and death and we endure in that hope. It leads us to endure. But I think this is where we get things off the track. I I really do. Because we lose track of our hope. We don't forget who Jesus is. We know who Jesus is. But we forget that Jesus has already won. We forget that Jesus has already won the victory. And so we start letting whatever is causing us to hurt, whatever's making it hard, whatever in the world is giving us unrest, whatever that might be that's causing us pain, we allow that to pull our eyes off of our hope, off of Jesus, and off of the mission. So today, what I want you to do is to ask yourself the question, where is my hope? Where is my hope? Is my hope in Jesus? Or is it in me? Is my hope leading me? Am I allowing my hope to shape me and press me forward on the mission that Jesus has given me? Am I remembering that my hope is in Jesus? Where is my hope? And then I want you to ask, am I enduring in that hope? Jesus has already won. He's already won the victory. Paul's showing us that here, right here in this text. And we need to endure in hope. This is important. Because that hope is going to help us to endure in suffering as well. That's what Paul's going to tell us next. Take a look at verse 10. He says, therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul's hope in Christ, his hope in Christ's victory is what leads him to endure in suffering. He says, therefore, because the word of God is not bound, therefore, I endure When Paul says, I endure right there, by the way, he is not talking about just putting up with the circumstances he's in. This isn't just Paul saying, hey, I don't complain. I just bite my tongue. That's not what he's saying right here. It it means that word endure means, means more than just that. It's got this active component to it. It's more like saying he, he stands his ground. You see, suffering causes us to want to shrink back. Suffering causes us to want to quit, to just give in. But that's not what we should do. And so for Paul, when he says, I endure, that that means, as, as one scholar noted, it means that he had an unrelenting commitment that moved straight ahead through the difficulty. But Paul doesn't just endure some things. What does he say there in the text? He says he endures everything. And that word everything right there in the text, it means just what it sounds like. Everything. I think our temptation though, is to think that he's talking about just his current context. When when you think of Paul saying everything here, you may be tempted to think of him sitting in a Roman prison, probably not the best place to be. Can we, can we agree on that? Probably a little bit worse when you consider how the conditions were in that prison. And worse still, when you think about the fact that he's facing a death sentence, bad place to be. But everything is bigger than even that. 
Flip back over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to look at a couple verses there. Because right there in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, he tells us what everything looks like. He, he tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 um, how he has had far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Five times, he says, I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. That's the everything that Paul is talking about here. Like all circumstances, regardless of what they're like, He's saying, I endure through everything, regardless of what it's like. And we've seen that his strength to endure is the hope that he has in Christ, in Christ's victory, in the fact that the mission continues to go on, even if he doesn't. That's where his strength comes from. But his motivation to suffer his motivation to endure this suffering is to see people come to know Jesus. He says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now, as we look at that sentence right there, there's some theologically heavy concepts right there. When Paul talks about the elect, he's talking about those that God has chosen to save. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 say that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he says, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. What that's saying right there is we look at that text right there. What that's telling us is that if you are a Christian, if you are saved, you are saved because God chose you. He predestined. That means to choose beforehand. He predestined you. He elected you to be saved. And that's who Paul endures for. For the elect. The reason he endures is so that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. But that raises the question that we have to consider. Because if God has chosen who to save beforehand, and if it's God's choosing that actually does the saving, then why does Paul have to suffer? Seems like we could just skip that step, right? God chooses who to save. God saves. Why does he have to suffer? This is the classic question that comes up whenever we talk about the doctrine of election. Why do I have to go out and tell people about Jesus if Jesus has already chosen who he's going to save? The answer to that question is that in God's sovereign plan, the means by which 
he chooses to save people and bring this offer of salvation to those he's chosen to save is through us. The means by which he chooses or he works to save those he has chosen is to use people who've been changed by the gospel to share the gospel. And when we understand that, what we find is that we have an encouragement to go out and share the gospel. We have an encouragement because there is a promise of success. When I was a kid growing up, my church didn't do VBS like we do here. We, we had these summer camps. It was, it was a summer day camp. It wasn't like overnight, but parents would drop you off early in the morning. You'd stay there all day. And it was five days long at these day camps. And every day of day camp, there was a different field trip. You'd go different places. Uh, the last day was always to the local amusement park, kind of like going to Owa or something. But I think one of my favorite um, annual field trips that we took was to the local fish farm. We, we had trout farms out in Washington State, and, and I loved going to the trout farm because we would get to go fishing. Now, you need to know this about me, and as I tell you this, this is a safe place, so there's no judging me here, okay? I love fishing. I love fishing. I hate fish. I hate seafood. Can't touch it. You couldn't pay me enough money to eat any kind of seafood. If it swims, crawls, burrows under the water, I'm not touching it but I love to fish. And because I love to fish, I loved going to the trout farm. Because one of the things about going to the trout farm that was awesome is, is those ponds with, with the rainbow trout that were in them were so packed full of fish that you were guaranteed success. All you had to do was take your little, like the poles didn't even have a reel. It was a stick with a piece of fishing line, about five feet of fishing line on it and a hook. You didn't even need bait, but, it, but assuming you had bait, you'd just lower it into the water, pull it up, and you had a fish on the line. And for a little kid, that was awesome. So I loved going fishing because there was a guarantee of success. And the doctrine of election is kind of like that. God has chosen to save people. And as we go out and we share the good news that we have in Jesus, because he's chosen to save people, we're going to share it with people that God has chosen to save and they're going to get saved. We're going to see victory. We're going to see success. And that should be an encouragement for us. That's why Paul endured everything because he knew that the gospel would succeed and that success was worth it. It was worth it to Paul. So Paul doesn't see his suffering as a bad thing because he knows it will lead to someone being saved. And this is what I want you to see today. For Paul, all of that suffering, all of that everything that we just read, all of it, he endured because it was worth it. If one more person comes to know Jesus, for Paul, it was worth it. If one more person has a life that is changed by the gospel, it was worth it. And that leaves us having to ask the question, is it worth it to me? 
am I willing to suffer if it means that one more person, even if it's just one more person, am I willing to suffer if it means that one more person comes to know, love, and follow Jesus? Am I willing to suffer if it means one more person is not going to spend eternity in hell? Is it worth it to you? Are you willing to risk that awkward conversation? Are you willing to risk uh, that friendship even? If it means that they're going to come to know, love, and follow Jesus. Because that's the reason that we're called to suffer. So that other people might come to know and follow Jesus. That's why we want to endure in suffering. But here's what I want you to recognize as well. Paul is telling us about his situation and he's telling us about his motives in order to press us to imitate him. He's calling us to do this. We're being called to endure in suffering so that we might see souls saved. So is it worth it? As we move into the remainder of this text here today, we're also going to see one more call to endure. And that's a call to endure in faith. Endure in faith. Beginning at verse 11, Paul is going to write a saying out. And some scholars believe that this is an early hymn of the church, the song they sang. I kind of lean that direction. There's not a whole lot of proof. It's just kind of what it looks like. Some believe it might have been an early creed of the church that they would stand up and recite together. Either way, it doesn't really matter. What matters is the truth behind what he's saying. He says, the saying is trustworthy. Now, we've encountered that statement three times before in our study in 1 Timothy and when he says this, it's, it's very similar to when Jesus in the Gospels would say, uh, truly, truly, I say unto you. Rhetorically, it's pressing us to recognize that what he's telling us can be relied upon. This is concrete. This is solid. This can govern us and guide us as we follow Christ. So he says, the saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, in this saying right here, we encounter four conditional statements, four if-then kind of statements. The first two are positive, and the second two are negative. But all four of them are pointing us to endure in our faith. He says, if we have died with him, that's a conditional statement. And it's reminding us that if you're a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have died with Christ. And we demonstrate this in baptism. That's why baptism by immersion is so important for us. We demonstrate this out. In Romans chapter 6, verse 4, Paul says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism in death. Now, let's stop there right there for a moment. We'll, we'll come back to this in a minute. But, but right here in Romans and over in 2 Timothy, this is pointing to a past event that has already happened in your life. At some point in your past, 
You died with Christ if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, this has already happened for you, but that past event points us to a present reality. If we have died with him, he says, we will also live with him. This is a present reality. We live with Christ. If you're a Christian, you live with Christ. Now, look at the rest of Romans chapter 6, verse 4. He says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, past, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Present. We live with Christ now. This is a present reality. And this is pressing us to remember that moment back whenever it was when you said yes to Jesus and remember that that moment where you said yes to Jesus should influence and guide how you live now in your present life because you've died with Christ, but now you live with Christ. That's what this is telling us. We live with Christ now. But this present reality that we live with Christ leads us into another present reality. Look at the first half of verse 12. He says, if we endure, if we remember Jesus Christ, if we persevere, if we stand our ground, if we imitate or or follow Paul's example and we hold fast to our faith, if we endure present reality, we will also reign with him. And that's a future hope. That's a promise of a future hope that we will enjoy fellowship with Christ in heaven. We'll spend all of eternity reconciled to God, free from the pain of sin, free from all the hurt and brokenness of this world, completely reconciled to God. Eternity with Christ, that's our future hope. And we need to remember that. But if we don't endure we encounter a warning. Look at the second half of verse 12. He says, if we deny him, he will deny us. This is a warning. And to be perfectly honest, it's kind of a scary warning. But Paul didn't make this up on his own. This comes straight from Jesus. Matthew chapter 7 Jesus said in verse 21 and following, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You workers of lawlessness. This is a scary warning. This should grab our attention. When we endure in Christ, we show by our faith and our action who our Lord is. But when we don't endure, a failure to endure in faith, it's to deny who Christ is. 
even if we're acting it out, if it's not real faith, if we don't endure in faith, we're denying who Christ is, of what he's done for us, of our need for him. And if we do that, he's going to say, I never knew you. Depart from me. That's a scary warning. I would never want to hear that. So we need to endure in faith. That first negative statement, it's a warning. Endure in faith. But the second negative statement, that one's a promise. Look at verse 13. He says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, as we read this hymn, we might expect that the results of our faithlessness is that God would be faithless to us, right? As we read this, the, just the cadence and the rhythm of this hymn seems to be leading to that point. But instead of leading us to, to a point where we're faithless, so God is faithless to us, where it leads us to is just the opposite. You see, God's faithfulness to us, it's not dependent on us. God is unchanging. He remains faithful. He remains faithful to who he is. He remains faithful to his own character. And this is a comforting promise when we recognize that. Because a God who is faithful to his character is a God who is faithful to keep his promises. Let that sink in for a moment. Think about what that means. That means that in those moments where you have doubt, in those moments where you fall short, in those moments where you sin, where you are faithless, God remains faithful. We still have the ability to come back and repent. In those moments, God doesn't, doesn't come up to us and say, you know what? That was the last straw. I'm done with you. He doesn't do that. We can still come to him in repentance. He remains faithful and he's faithful to forgive our sin. I mean, if you think about it, that's what happened with Peter, right? Three times, Peter publicly denied he knew Jesus. The last time he did it, he was swearing at a little girl. And yet after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, God forgives him and he restores him. Peter becomes a major player in the church. That's what we see at work in Peter. Even when we fail, even when we sin, God is faithful. So endure in faith. Don't give up. I think sometimes when we sin, we think, oh, that's it. There's no way that God can forgive me again. There's no way that he'll, he'll cover this one up. There's no way. I can't even repent of this because he's not going to forgive me. But what we're seeing here is that God is faithful. So don't give up. Repent of your sin. He's faithful. So have you sinned? 
Whatever it is, big or small, he's faithful. So repent, come back to Christ because he's faithful. This hymn is calling us to endure in faith. When we go all in on this thing we call being a Christian, when we go all in on on this thing we call following Jesus, I think what we're going to discover is that it's hard. It's not easy. We're going to encounter difficulties from outside. And we're going to encounter difficulties that we make for ourselves. Because the truth is, we sin. We make mistakes. We don't get it right all the time. And so if we're going to do this, we're going to need some endurance. We're going to need to endure. We endure in our hope. And our hope isn't in us. Our hope isn't in taking this checklist and just making sure we're getting it right all the time. Our hope is in Jesus's finished work. That he's been victorious already and so he will be victorious for us. That's where our hope is at and we cling to that as we endure. But we also endure when we suffer. Knowing that the cost of following Christ is worth it. It's worth it. We press in on the mission, knowing that that God is at work, even, and I would say, especially when it's hard. And we endure in faith, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus and always trusting that even when we are weak, even when we fall short, even when we sin and we're faithless, God remains faithful. Christ remains faithful. Following Christ is a marathon. It's not a sprint. We need endurance. And this text right here, it's reminding us of that. This is a call to endure. And we endure in in our hope. We endure in suffering. We endure in our faith because it's worth it. That's what Paul's pressing us toward here. So let me take that and encourage you today. Endure. Lean into Christ. Don't shrink back. Don't give up might hurt right now, let God use that. Maybe it's teaching you you need to rely on him more. Maybe it's showing you there's some sin you've got to deal with and stop playing around like it's a little pet. Endure. That's what he's showing us here in this text. Thank you for listening to the preaching podcast from The Point Church. If you would like more information about our church, or if you have any questions, you can find us online at tothepoint.church.